You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. This is our final week on the book of Ephesians. Some of you that have been following this for the last 11 weeks, we've done 11 weeks. Ephesians, how Jesus creates a new people in a new world. And today we're calling it Being the Church. Yet we finished the book. We've jumped into, I would say, the letter that obviously was to the Ephesians that's in the book of Revelation. Before I do do speak on this, I just want to say a big thank you to all the meetup leaders. I know that we do this on a Sunday. We've been encouraging people to work through a book, and we've also met in small groups. And uh, I'm in a small group led by a guy, Sam, and he's done a great job Monday by Monday. And so to all those meetup leaders in the room or online, we just want to say... Thank you. Right, let's have a look at this. We've just got one session to go through this. This is one of seven letters. I wish that we could read all seven. You've got to remember that these letters were written to churches. I can say that again. These letters were written to churches. They were not written to individuals or organisations. The place where they're written to is in modern-day Turkey. They called it Asia Minor. I believe that there should be a map coming up that just gives you an outline of these seven places. All the letters were read by all the people. I do not believe it was stages of church history. I believe that instead this was a temptation that could be open to any church, which is why it's very relevant to us today. All the letters have the same shape. I am skipping you through this. Uh, I I think there's been a slight mockery in the last few weeks. I've recommended three books each week. I'm just recommending one today. It's a study Bible. There should be a table coming up behind me now. This is taken from the study Bible. You can see that in each letter, it talks about the place It talks about the description of Christ. It talks about the commendation for the church. It talks about the rebuke for the church. It talks about the solution for the rebuke. It talks about the consequence of the disobedience and the promise for conquerors. Obviously, you've got all of that in your mind as we then jump into this one letter. Or if not, you're going to look at your study Bible as soon as you get home or as as soon as you unwrap it on Christmas Day. Okay, then. My first point is Christ. In each of the seven letters, we discover things about Christ. What do we discover today? It's very simple. Christ speaks to the local church. It's funny, I've got one of these old-fashioned things. I know Vincent read from something that's technological. Mine's just pen and paper. And on mine, what we read today is in red. Oh, because They are the words of Christ. That's the way the Bible is doing. Christ speaks to the church. I'll be honest, I can feel the pressure this morning. I hope you feel the expectation. When we come to the word of God, we're believing Christ is speaking to us today. What else do I get about Christ and the church? He holds the church in his hand. It's not by a corner, they say in the Greek word, it's almost like he's got it right in the scrum of his hand. It's not like, oh, oh, I've dropped it. I didn't just grab a little bit of the church. He has got the church in the palm of his hands. Great, I'm loving it. Adele, you should have been here every week. The louder you shout, the better I preach. 
It says in John 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus has ultimate power and authority over the church. So when you think, oh, golly, Ephesians, come on, Pete, we want a nice, happy Christmas message. I tell you, I don't think you can get better than this. Christ speaks to you and Christ has got you in his hands. It goes on to say, Jesus walks amongst the lampstands. There's another picture. He talks about the seven stars, seven churches. He talks about the seven lampstands. It's another symbol of the church. It's like Jesus is walking here now. I mean, he, he's amongst us. At Christmas, we always go on about the name Emmanuel, don't we? Which we all know means Jesus Christ is God with us. It says in Matthew 18, for where two or three gather, doesn't matter if you're at home, two or three gather, there I am. So suddenly I get excited because Jesus holds the church. He knows the church. He loves the church. I'm confident at the end of this year because Jesus builds his church. Matthew 16, 18, he says, I tell you, this is Jesus, you are Peter. That's a great word to me. (laughs) And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. At the end of 2020, when it's felt a very funny year, I am confident that Jesus loves his church, knows his church and holds his church. So I want to ask you a question. Do you love the church? Casual commitment is out of the question for a child of God. You see, if we're going to be like Jesus, we would love the church. A guy called Cranfield, he was a chaplain in World War II, became a lecturer at Durham University, said this, the freelance Christian who would be a Christian but is too superior to belong to the visible church upon earth in one of its forms, is simply a contradiction in terms. Can I just say this? The book of Revelation does not say Jesus is coming back for you. It doesn't say he's coming back for me. Oh, suddenly you think on to heresy now. We've gone quiet in the room, haven't we? The book of Revelation says Jesus is coming back for his bride which is us. And I think sometimes our danger is that we think, oh, it's me and Jesus. Whereas when you read this, you think it's Jesus and us. Jesus is coming for his bride. So what do we know about this church that we're looking at? The church in Ephesus. If you've not been with us the other few weeks, Ephesus was a significant city. It was powerful. It was political. It was financial. It was social. It was strategic. It was just like London in its day. It was a significant city and it was a significant church. Paul spent longer in Ephesus than we know of anywhere else. Paul, the traveling apostle that did these missionary journeys, he was in Ephesus for a long time. Timothy, we believe, was appointed as a bishop in Ephesus. John, who's written this letter, had been in Ephesus until he was sent to the Isle of Patmos. Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos all spent time in Ephesus. Okay, this one's not in the Bible, but some of you are like, church tradition... 
And I don't want to get too sidetracked on this. Church tradition is Mary, the mother of Jesus, was buried in Ephesus. It was considered a, an iconic place. And Jesus says to the church, I commend you. I commend you for your actions, for your wisdom, and for the way you've coped with circumstances. And he goes through, doesn't he? He says, your deeds and your hard work, your perseverance, your testing of an apostle. In many respects, the church in Ephesus were going all out for God. Let's just think about it. You know, if you brought a run-down house, you're going to go around there and do work and do work and do work. And you know, people might say, oh, pace yourself. You don't pace yourself. You're painting, you're stripping back carpet, and you, you do everything. I, look, I've never done this myself, but you know, I'm just trying to illustrate. You go to a gym, and you just sweat and sweat and sweat. You know, if you're a footballer, I used to play football, it was always the thing, leave everything on the pitch, save nothing for the changing room. That is the kind of attitude the church had. And he says, I delight in you. The practice of these Nicolaitans that had got into the church. If you read on in the letter, we think it was probably, Jesus talked about wolves in sheep's clothing. You can look that up at home in Matthew 7. They were basically spreading rumours about idolatry and sexual immorality. And they'd got into the church. And yet the church had said, ah, we've got to weigh this. We read the Bible ourselves. We understand God's word. What they're saying isn't right. That was fundamentally what they're doing. So what are some of the lessons that I could bring to us out of the church in Ephesus? Sadly, the church was more influenced by the culture than Jesus wanted. Let me ask a question. How impacted are we by a city that values experience, independence, money, and tolerance? This church was more impacted by the culture than Jesus wanted. The church in Ephesus was an example to us in an age of relativism. Because it said Christianity was exclusive. At this time, the Romans had ruled in Ephesus for 200 years. And you had to declare that Caesar was Lord. And the church said no. Do we stand for truth or accept everything? Despite all that the church was doing right, and it was doing lots right, it does not excuse the things they were doing wrong. Do you try, do I try and balance my life before God? What do I mean? Well, I read my Bible every day and look, I turn up at church and, you know, I'm serving. Does that just balance out the fact that I'm lazy at work or I gossip? The church here was obviously having this balance. And so the challenge comes. The challenge comes from Jesus. It's confronted. The church is confronted. You have lost your first love. Now, you read commentators and they say, was it their first love for God or was it their first love for one another? Well, we know from the book of Ephesians that we've studied that the gospel means that we love God first and we love one another. I honestly believe he was challenging them on both. J.I. Packer, 
The Canadian theologian, English-born man, said this, Western evangelicalism can smell unsound doctrine a mile away, and yet the fruit and personal experience of God often proves rare amongst us. What he was saying is, look, you've got all the right doctrine, but you're not encountering God and living it out. And I guess there's a challenge. I want to bring this challenge to us. Do we say, well, no, actually, we do believe the Bible is God's word. We've got the right doctrine. But then he's saying, well, look, where's the love? Where's the passion in your heart? A friend of mine uses the term, we, there is a danger that we can become the frozen chosen. We've got the theology. We know we're right. But have we still got the love? If you lose your first love, you're likely to become weary. When Jesus was questioned, he says this, Love the Lord your God, in Matthew 22, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Look, I feel, I feel challenged myself as I come to the end of 2020 and I can look back and think, oh, I've done my Bible reading. Oh, God, I want to get into your word and I love it. Has my first love for God and his people grown cold? Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 12 to emphasize the vital, the vital role of love. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move me, I'd be thinking, wow, give me a mystery, I'll explain it to you. Give me a question, I'll give you the answer. Give me a miracle, I've done it. <laughs> Paul says, look, if I could do all of that, but do not love, I am nothing. So what does he say to this church? What's the challenge to the church? Well, the challenge is three things. He says, I want you to remember the past. I want you to repent and I want you to do something. Remember, the Ephesians could look back on a radical start. You can look it up in Acts 19. Yeah, it says that basically they follow God so wholeheartedly. They've got all these scrolls that were all valuable stuff. And they think, we're going to burn them. Look, that wasn't people getting saved. If you read the Bible, it says that was the believers. So what they were doing is they were full on for God. And they were saying, hey, we're going to burn it. We could sell it. No, we don't want to sell it. We're going to burn it because we're going to dedicate everything to you. And this is wrong. They were radical. He said, remember your past repent. The solution Jesus says to the church is, come on, I don't want excuses. I don't want you to pass the blame. I don't want you to pretend it's not as bad as you first think. Turn 180 degrees. Turn away from sin. Turn back to God and do something about it. The Christian faith is to be lived, not just talked about. William Barclay, he was a Scottish author, radio and TV presenter, says this, the proof and the fruit of repentance is a changed life, a changed life by our effort in cooperation with the grace of God. And so you might say, oh, what do I do? Worship God. Love believers. Love your neighbor. Worship God. 
Love the church. Love your neighbour. That's why I think it's so great. We're going to baptise people next week. Isn't that sweet? Literally, at the end of this year, which has felt such a strange year, people say, do you know what? I love God. He's my number one. That baptism is not saying Jesus has saved me. It's saying Jesus is my Lord. It's not just saying, oh, God, he's sorted out my past. It's saying, I surrender everything to him. If you've not been baptised, there's still an opportunity. Join us next week. This is why we want to do a love healing through the Love Christmas campaign. Why? Because actually, we'd love to be able to bless schools. I know Richard's going to some old people's homes. I know that we're giving some vouchers out, some Greg's vouchers to the homeless in Ealing. I know that we're challenging people to do something in their own neighbourhood. Why? Because God has blessed us that we can be a blessing. This is why we have a week of prayer. You think, a week of prayer just before Christmas? Because actually we say, Jesus, you are worthy of it all. That's, That's why we do it. And then Jesus comes and he offers them a choice. I find it quite challenging, really, if you look at this passage. He comes, he confronts them with their problem, and he offers them a choice. He says, I'll either remove the lampstand, or you can come to paradise. Remove the lampstand, or come to paradise. Let's just have a quick show of hands. Anybody been to Ephesus on holiday? Just a couple of us. Well, I can make it up and you're all going to believe me then. <laughs> I have been there. There's amazing ruins that you can wander all around. If you go today, you will discover that the city is not on the coast. And yet part of its significance 2,000 years ago was that it was an incredible port. Today, it is six miles from the sea. It's funny, isn't it? Because I don't think they've picked up the city and moved it. You see, what had happened is that the port naturally silted up. And if they didn't keep cleaning it out, it, it literally has is, is just got full of soil. I think that is a spiritual picture which challenges us today. I do not know of a church in Ephesus now. I'm not going to say there is one, but it's funny. I was reading around about it. You see... This is, this, is, this is a huge picture. I'm trying to imagine. I was trying to think. I don't know how you feel about this. Just imagine, like, you know, Jesus is coming and saying, look, unless you guys really change, I'm going to bulldoze the whole of the Vatican and build a block of flats. Look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not having to pop up the Catholics, but, I mean, that church has been, that has been there for years and years and years. That's a shocking thought, isn't it? But that's literally what's happened. He said, you have a choice, remove a lampstand or paradise. Now, paradise was quite an interesting picture for those in Ephesus, because if you know anything, you know one of the wonders of the world at that time was the temple of Diana or Artemis. It depends. It's the same place used with two different names. And as part of this temple area, they had a garden and they had trees in it. And do you know that if you were a criminal and you could run to the garden, you were saved. Basically, you got asylum. That's how it worked. And so the word for paradise was really a Greek word for pleasure garden. Now, this is a picture 
that actually I think the Bible uses on many occasions. We know it as the tree of life. You can read about it in Genesis 2. After all, the Bible is one story. I know there's 66 books all within the covers. In Genesis 2, we read the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life. And the tree of knowledge of good and power. And we know, don't we, that Adam and Eve grabbed one. And because they'd grabbed and taken of that, God said they must be banished from the garden so that they couldn't access the tree of life. Now, that's not the end of the tree of life. In many respects, many of the prophets talk about this tree of life and a tree where there's healing for the nations. But we read about it again at the end of the book of Revelation. Last book in the Bible, Revelation 22, it says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life. Interesting picture. The first Adam, having eaten, was banished. In some respects, the Bible with... uh, compares Adam and Christ, even refers to Adam as the first Adam and sometimes the second Adam or Jesus Christ. We know that Adam disobeyed in the garden by eating. We know that Jesus obeyed in the garden of Gethsemane by surrendering to his father's will. We know that Adam brought a curse by eating the fruit. We know that Jesus took the curse by shedding his blood. We know that Adam's curse results in death. And we know that Jesus, is, Jesus conquered death and offers a life. I'd like to suggest the Bible is not suggesting we return to the Garden of Eden, but we go to the city of God. In fact, what Jesus says is the prospect of enjoying fruit from that tree should keep you going here on earth. And so although it could feel like, oh, God, I can't believe it. It's Christmas, second Sunday of Advent, and here I am challenging you. No, the Bible is. It's not me, you know. Don't stone the messenger. I believe actually there's hope. Because actually Jesus came and gave the message for them to respond. And actually, I believe this morning God wants to come and bring us a message of hope. One of the beautiful things for us here in the room today is we're going to be able to take bread, bread and wine. And that surely is a, a tremendous picture of hope. You see, we know from Exodus 34 that as God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, we know that the Bible is a message of hope. You see, if you're a robber this morning, that's a bit blunt, you get hope from the thief on the cross. If you're an adulterer this morning, you get hope from the life of David. If you're a murderer this morning, you get hope from the Apostle Paul. If you've denied Christ, you get hope 
from the life of Peter. If you're a prostitute, you get hope from the woman who washed Jesus' feet. If you're a crooked business person, you get hope from the life of Zacchaeus. If you're possessed, you get hope from the man set free from the chains. Ultimately, when it comes to Christmas, we have a message of hope. And that is what we're going to be proclaiming when we do the carols. 7.30 on the 20th of December, called The Thrill of Hope. I know it's going to be on YouTube so that you can share it with your friends. We have a message of hope. And then my time is up. I guess it reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. While he was in his sin, eating pig's food, he remembered his father. He repented and turned back home to be forgiven. And I believe that's the message of this book of Ephesians. When we've looked at this letter from Revelation, I don't want to duck the challenge though. What robs your love for Jesus? What stirs your love for Jesus? And what are you doing about both of those questions? I know that Mark's going to lead us as we come and remember all that Jesus has done for us, this second Christ. Let's just take one moment to pray and then I'll hand this back to Mark. Jesus, we do thank you so much that you know us, you hold us, you walk amongst us, you speak to us. We thank you, you give us a choice. You offer us hope. And we have got hope to offer others. I pray that we'll hear your voice today. The challenge of what robs us of love for you. That we'll get rid of it. I pray that you challenge us today about what stirs us to love you more. And we'll feed it. We ask all of this for your glorious name. Amen.